This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. Hello, uh, hello everyone. Uh, as Steve said, uh, my name is TJ, uh, or at least most of the time it is. Sometimes websites like to tell me that that's not quite right. Uh, I am the product manager of the New South Wales government design system. So that's a sort of hyperscale system almost. We've got hundreds of designers in government across different organizations. So quite a complex design system, and that's my day-to-day -day job. But my background, uh, interaction designer and have a go developer. So you'll hear me talking about code and pairing and des pairing design with code. Uh, but being an interaction designer is, is, really, is really where I'm coming from with this. So what is this about? Uh, so the name of this is Design Ops 2.0, Powerful UX at Scale. Uh, it doesn't give too much away. Um, so what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about scaling design, the concept of, of design scaling in organizations. We'll cover the definition of design ops. We'll talk about what design ops is and, and different people's definitions of design ops. Uh, we'll talk about what this 2.0 thing is all about and how that's slightly different to design ops 1.0 or, or usual design ops. Uh, we'll talk about why you would want to do it, the benefits, and how you can do it as well, some of the approaches you can take. So first of all, let's talk about why UX teams are growing. I think uh, in, a, in a room full of UXs, it's probably easy to, to skip past this bit and say that we all know that UX has gone from early adopters to business critical. Um, I think as soon as government and big organizations like banks started saying well, UX is really important to us, then we kind of knew that there was um, a, lot of, a lot of power behind it. And because of that, companies and organizations are desperate to get more of that uh, UX benefit from the uh, benefit for their customers, benefit for citizens in government, um, the benefit of having a good user experience. But scaling so far has been problematic. There's been different approaches. Uh, some have worked better than others. Um, so there's a few options people generally take. Option one is the Spotify model. That's been very popular. Um, and it, it works great in some places, but there's a good sort of decision tree for whether the Spotify model is, is a good off-the-shelf model to take, uh, which is first question, are you Spotify? Potential answers to that are yes and no. Um, if yes, great, it's perfect for you, it'll work. If no, it might not work for you. It probably needs a bit of changing. So um, I think the people who made the Spotify model, the thing that they say the most about it is don't follow it. Uh, make your own model, use it as an like, inspiration. Option two is just to give your UXs heaps more work. And I don't think I need to convince anyone here that UXs are already very busy people. Uh, we don't necessarily want to just take on double the amount of work that we have now. That's not really going to uh, help us do a better job. Option three is to clone them. Uh, lots of organizations grow their UX practice by getting lots and lots and lots of UXs, um, sort of going down to Academy XI and General Assembly with a big net on graduation day and grabbing everyone, all the new talent. Um, that works really well for numbers and it gives you a really powerful UX team, but uh, it can be can have its teething problems as you grow. And option four is to find a UX crossover person for every role. So for every person that interacts with the user experience in any way, go and find someone who's actually in their mindset, a UXer, but their hard skills might be a developer or a service designer or um, even a database architect. Realistically, it's pretty hard to make this happen. So design ops has become a good way to operationalize UX, given that we can't just easily do all those previous things. Design ops gives us a way to, uh, to kind of operationalize and, and make things a bit more efficient. 
Now, DesignUps has multiple different definitions, just like UX does. Um, but I'm going to give you my own personal definition of design ops um, because that's kind of what, what's going to lead this talk. Um, but it's not to say that anyone who has a different definition of design ops is wrong. Different organizations need different approaches. So for me, design ops is giving people in design the tools, processes, artifacts, and support that they need to make better things, which is basically like saying getting repetitive, automatable stuff out of the way so that people in design can do the actual job of designing experiences. And one of the things you might have noticed is it says people in design and not designers. The two aren't always the same. There's capital D designers, which is your UX designers, UI designers, UX UI designers, service designers, and content designers, plus others. That's not a complete list. Then people in design, it's kind of anyone who's involved in decisions that make this thing good, make the finished product good. And in digital, if we look at a definition of good, then it's a good experience and a good outcome for a user. And a good experience is kind of about a bit more than we might think about. So who are people in design then if it's not just designers? First of all, designers, that's the biggest, the biggest cohort of people in design. Um, and that goes back to that list that we had previously. But also, it's anyone who builds the experience of a product or service and anyone who supports users of those products or services. So this is once something's gone live, when a service is actually you know, being used by customers, the people who provide the support, we kind of have to design for them as well because uh, they are make a, they're having a big impact on the user's experience. So the, the shocking revelation here, which I think um, we all saw coming, is that designers don't create the UX on their own. A UX can be impacted by all the layers of a product or service, which includes visual design, UI and interaction design, and content, the bits that we would traditionally think of as part of UX. It also includes code, the way the code's written, how well it works on people's browsers or, or whatever other product. And I think sometimes we think of that as part of the UX, but less frequently. And servers and stuff, databases, infrastructure, things with flashing lights, things that make the overall product work, that's also part of the UX. Because if the website isn't fast enough to load or if it's down, then that's not a good experience. Which kind of takes us back to this example. Um, you know, we've got a really good design here. Interaction design-wise, I know exactly that there's a problem because it's gone red and there's an error message and the error message looks great. The colors are well chosen. Um, it's, it's a good looking thing interaction wise, you know, I know what to do, but there's a bit of a content problem because it says two characters too short, uh, which I guess means two characters is too short or your name needs to be longer. Um, there's a UX problem because uh, I'm not, my name might be an acronym, but there's plenty of names out there that are two characters and people don't have another option without just adding sort of fake letters to their name to make it longer. So what's happened here is it seems like maybe the design has been done and then something else that's impacted the UX has happened to do with maybe a database. Maybe it needs a minimum of three or four characters for the database. Uh, so that's the kind of example that we're talking about when we say designers aren't creating a UX on their own. The reason this matters and the thing that brings us back to scaling uh, is because when you scale, we kind of need to think about what we're scaling. Are we scaling design? So if we've got little niggly faults that happen in our design process, which is really normal, if we scaled, we want to make sure that we're not scaling those, we're scaling design itself rather than just the number of people doing that role. 
because if we scale the number of people, it's going to amplify any bugs in that approach. So if we're scaling design, we need a really reliable system that's going to stand the test of, of scale. So if we look at what we've sort of gone through so far and summarize it, we know that non-UXs are also responsible for user experiences. We know that good experiences go across practices. We're not making these on our own as designers. No designer should or could know all of these practices. I'm, I'm sure there's some unicorn out there who knows database architecture and servers and code and, and whatever else needs to go into it. But realistically, a, a designer and a team can't be expected to know all of these practices, which are all problems. But the good thing is design happens first. We're at the start of the process. So that means that we're also in a good position to pass on those UX considerations, things like validation for how long a name is. However, we're very busy already, already very busy. And we've already talked about the fact you can't just clone designers um, and you can't just give them more work. So that's where DesignOps 2 comes in. Whilst DesignOps is about giving designers the stuff they need to do the same job more efficiently, DesignOps 2 kind of takes some UX strategy and design ops, puts them together, and it scales a different UX approach altogether. So now we've got designers who own the whole experience at scale, and design ops too is about facilitating that, which might seem like it's more work. And if you're scaling, more work is not what we want. But don't panic, because the operationalization side of it is where things get easier. So looking at the implementation of design ops too, and this is just my personal approach. Um, I've done a quick decision tree for whether this approach would work for you. And the first question is, are you me? Uh, if the answer is yes, that's great. It's already working. This is what you do every day. Um, if no, it might still work. Um, anyone can do this. This is not a, I don't have any special knowledge. I'm just a designer. Um, but uh, it's also about saying that there is no version of this that can just be sort of picked up and transplanted. But there are some common patterns. And this is from my own experience doing design ops too. And also um, PayPal have scaled design ops too. Uh, so they're quite, they're, they've scaled it to quite a big uh, team across the world. And uh, General Electric are also implementing some of these sorts of patterns. And what's common is starting with designers. This kind of goes two ways. As designers, we are the beneficiaries of this because we're the ones whose work is, is kind of more guaranteed. Um, but we also start the process chronologically. So if we're the first people in a process, then we sort of kick the whole thing off and we're in the best position to, to start it off right. Design systems really help. Design systems are like the, uh, the sort of vessel that carries design ops to and carries all the other stuff along the process. Uh, the culture matters more than the methodology. So it's not about how you work or the exact tools that you use, although those really help. It's more about the sort of mentality of, of a more collaborative approach to UX and, and a slightly different scale approach. And the tools and processes are there to help us change culture. But realistically, community is the thing that's going to bring trust to this. So if it's just somebody, one person in an organization, even if that person has some clout saying, we need to work this way, um, Realistically, that's not going to get as much traction as something that's more community-based. So just to go into a bit more detail about a couple of these, starting with designers, 
This is basically making DesignOps 2.0 work using design systems as that vessel. For, for UI people, we, we, we're very familiar with design systems. And if you're talking about UX at scale, realistically, there's probably some design system stuff going on already. And it helps us centralize the resources, the UI resources and the UI UX resources to minimize the amount of work that has to be done in each product team for each use. By taking those, uh, let's say you use an atomic design, you've got uh, atomic um, components. By taking those and saying not just how are they broken up on that one layer of being atomic um, you know, atoms or molecules, how do we go deeper and add some UX to that? Now we can give developers something that has a full UX consideration already. So using a name example, maybe the component in the design system for asking someone a name doesn't just have the UI, actually has the validation that you might need as well. The considerations for different international names, there's some countries where people only have one name, they don't have a surname. Um, maybe asking for an address is a common one. That's something that's actually quite difficult for some people in certain circumstances, especially in government. Uh, so we can actually put that, those UX considerations in there. UX people are now in a position to, to write those contextual patterns. So the address one is, is a good one. If you're a if you're sort of more on the anthropology side of, of UX and, and you've come in doing and you've done research, then maybe having done that research, you've realized you can't ask people for their address and no service should rely on it. We can actually sort of bundle that information now with the bit of UI that people already know they need. Uh, so now the, the fact that you, the UI is in the page is carrying that customer experience across the process too. And basically what we end up with is teams being a ranges of tested micro experiences. So if you're a designer, if you're a UI UX designer, then you're probably familiar with atomic design, same principle as that. And if you're a developer, you're probably familiar with containerization and it's the same concept as that. And it's kind of putting the two together. So with starting with designers, we also need to change something that we do. We kind of need to make it more doable. Um, if we're gonna own the tools and components, the thing that we need to change is around speaking the language of our users, the users of those tools. So this is uh, developers or content people or CX people, and pictures won't do that. Um, you know, we, we have great tools like Figma and Sketch that we use, and we create things that are realistic. We uh, create, you know, 3D, the equivalent of an architect creating a 3D render. So architect creates a 3D render, they can show it to a stakeholder, to a client, they can see what they're going to get. But if a builder wants something, they give them a floor plan. So what we do is we think about how we can give floor plans instead of giving 3D renders. And it's kind of the fourth stage of maturity for design system. To briefly cover the stages, you've got a visual design system. This is something that's just in Sketch, just in Figma. You might add some HTML and CSS to that so that you're starting to work with coders. The next step would be to have one of everything in code that you've got in Figma and vice versa. And the fourth step here is a full stack UX system where the things are connected. So you've got the design and code are connected to each other. It avoids design drift and lets you sort of bundle all that UX stuff as well. There's a few tools that can help with this. Uh, I won't go into loads of detail about these. The ones that I've used are the ones at either end. So we've got Zeppelin. Uh, I think we're probably all familiar with that. That's gonna help you uh, you can connect components to it, code components, and you can connect the components in Figma. And it's basically going to draw that link between the two and say that thing from Figma that the designers use to the developer is this thing in the code. Uh, you've got 
Figma and React Figma. This isn't about exporting from Figma to React because that only ever gives you something you can use once. This is about importing your React design system components into Figma so that you are using at the design stage what the developer is going to have. Framer works in a very similar way. And then UXPin Merge works in a similar way again, but it adds a bit more. So UXPin Merge adds in the ability to sort of see what those prop props have changed on, the, on a React component. And it's basically a no-code tool for designers to use React components to design in a design-like interface. So that's the tools, that's the implementation. Um, to briefly cover a couple of other bits, the culture, applying this approach is more of a cultural change than it is a change in approach. You can use those tools, but that doesn't mean you're doing design ops too, and you can do design ops too without using those tools. Um, it's probably similar to moving to Agile, just like you can have a stand-up and a Kanban board, but not follow the principles of of launching something soon and, and, and releasing something early and not follow agile principles, you can do the same thing with this. So the culture is really more important and the tools have to be ready before they're needed. So this is a stage we're at in, in New South Wales government. We're creating the tools for design ops too. Not every department, not every agency is currently working that way, but we can't expect people to work that way. And we can't convince people it's a good idea if when, we, when they say, great, show us, there's nothing there to show. So you need to get the design system and the tools ready. Some values that have worked in government and for PayPal. Um, for organizations, it's more efficiency. The example is a small bakery that makes cakes. Five people work there. Those people probably spend their time mixing flour and sugar and, and I'm showing up that I can't make cakes. Um, but doing whatever it is that people do to make cakes. But if you wanted to make 5,000 cakes an hour, you would have a big machine. And sure, you'd hire bakers, but those bakers would be about the system and, and how they create good quality stuff and quality control. The non-designers, it gives them reliability. So a dev knows that they've not got to make decisions about you know, how strict a password rule needs to be or how long a name is. Um, so it gives those devs that reassurance that they're being facilitated by designers to create good experience. Not just devs, other people, support people, whatever, whatever, whoever else is involved. For all designers, it gives us quality assurance. So we know that what we hand off is gonna go into being created into a, a good experience and not gonna get changed along the way. And the final bit is community. Um, I can't say much about this because it's a very, you kind of have to, it's a very ad lib thing. But um, if you want to encourage cultural change, a community based approach is far more inclusive because it, every organization is going to have its own way to do this. And every organization is going to want different parts of this more. Even as a community based thing means that kind of organically happens. If it comes from top down, it's just like a version that someone's heard in a talk and then gone and Googled and thought it was a good idea or something. And it's not really, um, it's not customized in the right way and it's pretty hard to get that off the ground, which is very similar to something we're probably all familiar with. It was this bloke dancing on a hillside and there's videos that break this down about how it's a, a metaphor for leadership and started with one person, ended up with probably hundreds. That's what we're aiming for with this. We don't really want to just tell people to dance because then they're not gonna enjoy it. So to summarize, uh, we know that scaled UX is fundamentally different. So it's not just about multiplying our the same practice back to that cake metaphor. Um, we know that scaling is a team sport, so it's about getting people involved who maybe wouldn't usually be involved in, in UX. DesignOps 2 is just about facilitating that. So DesignOps 2 is kind of almost like the administrative operational side of it. It's not the actual UX strategy itself, that's, that's different. We might need to work differently, and that's where our changes as UXs can really help scale, make a scalable system. Automation helps, but it's not there to take anyone's job. So 
we need to automate stuff because basically we're going to have a lot to do. We've got we've got more work because we're scaling anyway. Plus, we're now taking on considerations for other parts of the business, other parts of the team. And you can't just clone people, uh, both from a legal standpoint and a scientific standpoint. And in terms of having lots of new people in UX is not necessarily going to help. It might just amplify some of the problems you've got. And that's everything. So if you want to read up any more about this, um, if you Google Design Apps 2, there's a couple of talks. I've done a couple and um, Erica Ryder from PayPal has done a few as well. And um, it's kind of her phrase originally. So yeah, if you go and Google that, then there's, there's loads of talks out there as well about, about this. Thank you.